0: Welcome to I'm a Writer, but my guest today is Athena Dixon. Born and raised in Northeast Ohio, Athena Dixon is a poet, essayist, and editor. She is the author of the essay collection, The Loneliness Files, The Incredible Shrinking Woman, and No God in This Room, winner of the Intersectional Midwest Chapbook Contest. Her work also appears in the Breakbeat Poets Volume 2, Black Girl Magic, and Getting to the Truth, the Practice and Craft of Creative Nonfiction. The Loneliness Files asks the question, what does it mean to be a body behind a screen lost in the hustle of an online world? In our age of digital hyperconnection, Athena Dixon invites us to consider this question with depth, heart, and ferocity, investigating the gaps that technology cannot fill and confronting a lifetime of loneliness. Welcome, Athena. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. As soon as I read the premise of your book, I was like, I have to talk to her because... I, too, am obsessed with all these stories,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and and we'll talk about the directions that you take them in, which are surprising and poignant and, um, in some cases, ferocious, as as was just inferred. Um, But before we get started, I'd love for you to read a little bit from it.
1: So I'm just going to read a little bit from the opening essay, Say You Will Remember Me. Right. And so they just kind of concentrates on the idea of loneliness and uses the lens of a woman named Joyce Carol Vincent to tell the story. I remember loneliness because it is pervasive. It has a way of wrapping itself around me until it hides what's actually true. It squeezes tightly in my mind until what makes sense, what's actually happened is distorted. Sometimes the loneliness makes me forget the goodness and the connection of my life. I find ways to compartmentalize these experiences until it is easy to remember only what I want. I think alone is sexy, mysterious in its heaviness. Alone seems like a choice. Loneliness doesn't. This seems like I've been forgotten, passed over, discarded. It can feel like the world is way too bright. Just an expanse of whiteness with nothing else in sight. It makes me feel singular and small. On the cusp of 2021, in a green dress and red lipstick, I told myself I could cry. One wailing sobbing mess of a breakdown between sips of liquor, because when I woke up the next morning, the world would appear to be new. this New Year's Eve was only a celebration of a year that needed to end- a year that saw some of us sink into isolation and others delve further into individualism and selfishness. This night was a cap to months of loneliness, a small bit of joy and release before heading into the bleakness of what could be the coming year. I checked out of the month's news ago too overwhelmed by death and discord that I felt myself slipping too much into darkness. This was a cry, a promise to myself that it would wash away the concrete deaths and dying dreams of what 2020 could have been. I had a book on the way, and I'd finally started to find my voice when I'd been so sure I lost it. As selfish as my feelings may have been, it just wasn't fair, and I wanted to wallow. I cried and then danced until my body slowed to rocking, and when the loneliness countdown ended, the loneliness came in like a wave. My loneliness is not groundbreaking, though, and it is not tragic, it just is, nothing more and nothing less. I don't expect it to be important to anyone other than myself, but I write about it anyway. I turn it over like something precious in my hands, carefully as it floats across my fingers so I can see the details of it, where dust and dirt and grit hide, the things that irritate and choke me when I breathe too deeply. My loneliness is deep. It's oddly comforting because I know what to expect. It's like a light switch, sudden and complete when it rears its head my body starts to wind down and my mind disengages. Loneliness and isolation have been a slow build of contentment over the years before the sudden revelation of how the two are really disconnect disguised as choice. How between parents, a sibling, family, and friends is always the fear that I will die alone. Sometime before Christmas in 2003, London was headed toward the new year when Joyce Carol Vinson died in front of the television. She wasn't found until January 2006. I was 25, she 38, a set of coveted ages right in the middle of all the world is made for. I can only imagine we were a marketer's dream. When we think of the world, youth and beauty are at the center of it all. As time moves forward, the distance between importance and ourselves grows wider though. But in the waning days of 2003, Joyce and I were insulated in her youth and my beauty, important if only for those reasons.
0: And I'll end there. Thank you so much. That's a wonderful taste of The Loneliness Files. Um, and I had never heard of Joyce Carol Vincent before reading this. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I also love true crime and unsolved mysteries and, um, my, my novel that's coming out is based on a, on a true crime. And when I'm asked, you know, why, why do you love these stories? I struggle to put my reason into words. I like, I end up coming up with something like, well, they're so human, Mm -hmm. um, but it, it occurred to me, having read your collection, that maybe I'm I'm looking for something I recognize. Maybe like I'm even looking for something I recognize in myself. And I wanted to hear from you if you could talk a little bit about what drew you to these stories.
1: I think when I kind of stumbled into the story of Joyce Carol Vincent and eventually Geneva Chambers and Elisa Lamb, all of the women ended up being something that I could be. And so during the course of the the first wave of lockdowns in 2020 I was very deep into listening to true crime podcasts and watching these mysterious videos on YouTube and there was such a detachment there because I was just looking at it like facts and this is what happened here and analyzing things. But when I came across the story of Joyce, it was the first time where I was like, this could actually be me. Oh my gosh. Listening to this story and I'm watching these videos about this woman who's by herself in an apartment and she dies and no one knows. And I look around me and I'm like, oh wow, I'm a woman alone in her apartment behind a triple locked door. Something really is to happen to me. I don't think it would take three years for someone to find me, but there would be some kind of delay. Um, between me passing away and somebody finding me. And it really kind of scared me a little bit because I was like that the ability to disconnect from the story was no longer there. And so it really got me to thinking about all the choices and the decisions that I'd made to get to a point where I could be just like her. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that is like a real thought process that we all could go down you know like it's it's it really is like i i was thinking it's kind of similar to when i read a great book like yours and i think am i capable of writing like this you know like you're you're constantly searching for yourself in these things that really affect you mm-hmm. um but her you know her mystery and and in a way this made me feel um like the world is so huge but it's also so small like her she sort of issued life right like she kind of let go of everyone in her life um you know it was it was sort of a mystery of of like why she was sort of um retreating into herself it seemed even though she was found with Christmas presents that she was wrapping which is so exactly. sad
1: and I couldn't find anything necessarily to say who those presents were for right um, anything like that I'm like but she had I think it was four sisters and at some point she was engaged and she had worked for corporations and she had, a very connected and upperly mobile life really. And at some point there was some unfurling of her grip and we still really don't know what it is. Um, even how she came to be living in that particular apartment, I think that it was, there's some indication that maybe there was a domestic violence issue, but I mm-hmm. couldn't really find a lot of information about where that stemmed from. Mm-hmm. It kind of like, almost like this, I'm tired of holding on to life in the ways that I've been holding on to it my entirety the entirety of my life. And so I'm just going to let go. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately that letting go never got rectified. And so it was like far too late, but it's just such a mystery of how just like one decision could have possibly set that, that chain of events off. And it ended with her being alone for all those years.
0: And it sounds like for you, when, what, what you started with Mm -hmm. was, could this happen to me? Yes. And is that why you started writing about it?
1: I was already kind of thinking about starting to dissect what I was feeling during that, that, that first wave of 2020, just mm-hmm. because I was a person who journaled pretty much every day for a good handful of years and I had fallen away from it. So I started thinking maybe I needed to kind of document what I was feeling because it was getting a little bit heavy. But when I came across her story and really started thinking about, how similar our lives were even though she was almost a decade older than me we were still in that same generation it really got me to thinking okay so this I didn't I didn't go into it thinking I was going to write a book about it I just kind of wanted to write about all the decisions that led me to that particular moment and then once I started writing about it I started seeing all these other angles into my life and I was like this might be something here and um Fortunately for me, the algorithm just kept giving me stories and mm-hmm. having information in my path. And so it, it spurned me to start writing more and more about loneliness and all the ways that it manifests. And that's how the book came to be. But really, writing about her, that was the first essay that I wrote in the collection, was to really dissect my own life. Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe it could be a standalone essay, but I didn't think that it would turn into the project that it turned into.
0: When did you know that this is going to
1: be um, probably once I got into the the following two essays, I said the Spider to the Fly, which is mm-hmm. about Chambers and Ghost in the Machine, which was about Elisa Lamb, And then I started really thinking, okay, there's too many things that are popping up in this path that have to do with disconnection and isolation. So maybe this is going to be what I focus on and maybe I'll write a longer, almost, I, I really originally thought that I would write a book that was more geared towards how social media and technology lends itself to this isolation and disconnection, mm-hmm. but then, as I wrote those three essays and got into the the Truman Show essay um, in service of the algorithm, then I started thinking, no, it can't be that that simple. There's so much more other than technology and algorithm. And so once I got to like maybe three or four essays in, I said, this is going to be a larger project, and now I have to determine where I'm going to steer the project by the end. But there's something here about disconnection
0: that I really need to to look at I'm somebody whose battery runs down very quickly and so for me in the beginning social media became like a way to still stay connected without using that kind of energy and wearing myself out but it quickly becomes um we in another way right like you are separated you are not you know, you're looking at something on the screen rather than experiencing it in in the in the real world. And you know, I think for a writer, we're always kind of living in our head. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're creating these things in our head and we're we're putting them, you know, we're not even using pencils or pens anymore, really. I'll maybe you do since you're a, a lifelong journaler, but
1: you know not when I write for, journaling, yes, but writing always my
0: laptop. Always or my your phone. laptop. Oh, on your phone? Mm-hmm. Like in your notes app yeah, or something?
1: I, um, I use, I have Google Docs and Bear, which is my preferred writing method on my phone. So I'll write in bed on my phone or anywhere. That I don't have my laptop. I just export stuff from my phone onto my laptop.
0: I love that. What do you think has done well for us writers? And what do you think it's done poorly for us writers?
1: For social media? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think for me, at least the the best thing that's come about from it's kind of twofold. The first is social media was like the first time I ever felt fully, fully confident in sharing my work. So I came up in that first wave of like message boards and mm-hmm. angel fire pages. And so I was always posting my poetry at the time on message boards and really getting into these forums with other people and getting to meet with people that I would have never met because I'm from a small town in Northeast Ohio. So I was meeting people from all over the world who had a love for creative writing, and it was a way that I was getting feedback on my work. And so that early iteration of social media really made it easy to step outside of my shyness and share my work in a way that I think still ripples today. And then in the more modern time of my writing career, it especially 2020 to 2022 really, Because when my first book came out, it was right at the right before my book got accepted in January of 2020. Oh, my gosh. And it came out in 2020. So that eight month span between when my book got accepted and when my first collection came out, everything was shut down. The silver lining of that was I got to participate in events through Zoom and through Facebook Live and through Instagram Live and and TikTok that I would have never had the opportunity to participate in because social media existed. Mm -hmm. And so I got to experience a lot like a virtual book tour that wouldn't have happened had I physically had to go to these places. The opportunities probably wouldn't even been offered to me. But on the flip side of all those positives, I think social media, especially as writers and other creators, we do each other such a disservice in not being fully transparent on what both sides of the publishing industry looks like like yeah I could always talk about oh I have a book coming out or I'm going to do this book tour I'm going to be doing all these things but I also have a responsibility to other writers and people in the industry to say but by the way I still don't have an agent because every agent I've pitched has rejected me or I was up for this really big opportunity and I didn't even get a response I just found out because they announced it somewhere um are those true
0: examples for you
1: true examples. What? <laughs> yeah, I do not have an agent. I have gotten ghosted for some big things and didn't <sighs> know until they got not publicly announce. Um, yeah, like, so I take it upon myself on my platforms that if something is really, really good, I'm going to talk about it. But if there's some rejection or something that's kind of bad or is making me feel poorly, then I'm going to talk about it too, because I think it's my job to use that platform as a way to not only highlight the good, but also show the bad. But I think social media is such a highlight reel a lot of times. And it's such a brand thing for a lot of creatives that we don't show what it takes to get to those high points. I know that I've mentioned in a couple of panels before about building your platform is that when I first Instagram is my preferred social media. It's where I feel most comfortable And it's where I spend most of my time and When I started really talking about my writing on um, Instagram, I started talking about the highs and the lows, and I had a couple of people come to me and tell me not to talk about the bad because you're building a brand and the brand yeah. is supposed to be positive. I'm like I'm first of all, I'm a human being, I'm not a brand um, yeah also, like. Why would I Why would I do a disservice to writers who are still trying to get to some of the milestones I've been able to achieve by lying to them about how many years I had to write and how many submissions got rejected and the steps that it took to get to having a book deal and all the things that I still want to accomplish. Like getting an agent has been on my literary goal list for like four or five years at this point and it still hasn't happened. So I have to be honest. And I think social media has the potential to be a wholly positive thing, but I think it it's really determined by how the person using it puts their content, quote unquote, content out into the world and, and how they're conscious about how they're presenting what writing and writing life looks like on a day-to-day basis.
0: I would say that that work is essential and it also does the work of making writers feel less lonely. <laughs> to bring it back yeah. to the the theme because it is such a relief to hear, um, you know, like Jack Gems has a rejection blog and you mm-hmm. would look at her and you would think on the surface, she's so successful. She has a Guggenheim, you know, like she's yeah. published, I don't know, five books now on very good, you know, publishing houses. And then you go to her rejection blog and you're like, she gets rejected all the time or Jamie Attenberg who runs a newsletter talking about her process and how often she breaks her book and how hard it is and how she has to go back and forth with her editor over and over again, or, you know, like fighting for a living wage as a writer. We don't talk about that ever. Um, You know, that's kind of why this podcast exists is because I want people to understand that it's not, it's not a writer plucking inspiration from the, you know, the tree of golden pears and then sitting down and letting it flow. It is. Right hard to work.
1: I made an Instagram story this past weekend because I had a really big thing that went wrong. And I said in that one of the stories that publishing is hard. You're going to be hurt. You're, the wind is going to get knocked out of you. Um, and that's normal. Does it always feel good? No, but, but you would be going into this industry blind. If you thought that you were just going to write this, you could write the best thing ever and somebody still won't want to publish it because the creation of work and the selling of work are two different things. And, And you could have a technically perfect, beautiful piece of work, but if there's not an agent editor or publishing house that believes that they can publish it and make some kind of profit to some degree or some kind of accolade on it, it may just sit on your computer forever. So you have to be very cognizant of like, the business side and the rejection side and in the, the painful side of this industry, like creation is not the only part of it.
0: I've gotten to the point now where if I get any good news about my writing, I start to like, um, like assume like the defensive stance, like, okay, now something bad's going to come, you know, it's oh, just like, absolutely. You, it's impossible for it to just sort of be this like wonderful, great, smooth path. Why do we keep doing it? Athena? Why do we keep writing?
1: I think there's something innately in us. There's some kind of spark. There's some kind of kernel that lets us express ourselves in a way that can be tamped down. I think even if somebody says they're no longer writing for publication or writing just to kind of create, I think that it's going to come out in another way. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think the writers have the ability to stop. I think the format and the, the, Arena for it may change, but I don't think that a, a writer who is really meant to write or really feels like they're meant to write will ever stop. It's just it changes how they're going to put it into the world. It could be you might you might say, I'm not going to write for publication anymore, and you might write the most beautifully scripted shopping list that are really, <laughs> are really like. Uh, hermit essays (laughs) like yes it it always comes out I think there's something innately built into people who are good with language and and writing and a creative spirit that will come out in however way whatever way it needs to come out it'll come out Um, I, I just don't think it's possible to stop
0: you know I was thinking about the it's very different writing a book and then the book comes out and then there's like a story about the book or you know, um, like a narrative about the book itself, or even like how you feel about the book as the writer kind of shifts and changes based on reactions to the book. Um, and I find myself caught in that spiral all the time. And then I will eventually come to this point where I say, well, I just want to be myself (laughs) Yeah, and myself is sitting down and writing something that I'm like having a lot of fun doing. And that challenges me. Um, what do you think your most self self is? Um I I will say I agree with that. Like I
1: I felt like I've, I've talked about the book quite a bit since it got announced and one of the things that I I thought about originally was I wrote the book because I was curious about something enough to chase it down a rabbit hole for like mm-hmm. 2 years. Mm-hmm. Like that's the crux of everything that I write. Like I find a song or a smell or a person or article or or some scrap of something in the world. And that thing is the thing that makes me sit at my desk or where I happen to be writing and write it. Um, And I think sometimes, especially when you have a book that's out, it's difficult to say that because people think that the the creation of the book is some like grand plan of I was going to sit down and write this tome that like illuminated some topic. I'm like, Mm Not really, I was just really, really interested in this particular thing. And by the time I got done writing 16 essays, it shaped into a book, but the the crux of anything is the curiosity. Um, So for me, it's kind of the curiosity of chasing this particular thing into a rabbit hole, but also feeling like I have a voice. Um, I felt, I don't necessarily feel it as much now, but I felt, especially when I was writing my first collection, very much like I had no voice and I just wanted somebody to listen Mm. and so I made a decision to write things that I thought were important to me that weren't necessarily bombastic or sensational but were very real everyday feelings about loneliness and invisibility and disconnection and voicelessness and said if I find an audience for that and I find people who are interested in this work as a whole, cool. But right now I just need to be able to have a voice. And so that curiosity and that need for a voice are the two driving forces in anything that I write.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about why you felt like you didn't have a voice at that time?
1: Um, Part of it is external. I Even to some degree right now with this book coming out tomorrow, I still feel very much on the fringe Mm. of the publishing industry. And so there's a creative lack of voice there. I think that I have a little bit of a louder voice now, but a couple of years ago, I really felt like it's very difficult to be heard in a place where you don't have a press behind you, or you don't have an, you don't have a lot of people, you don't have a mentor. I don't have a writing mentor. You don't have people going to bat for you. And so in that space, I felt very voiceless because I could write something, like I said earlier, a beautiful book, but if there's no body kind of like paying attention, it's me screaming into a void. So mm-hmm. Creatively for a while, I felt very, very voiceless. And then personally, in a a very internal way, um, I think I suffer from like oldest child syndrome. Mm. I'm the oldest of two children. I'm 12 years older than my sister. So I was an only child for a very long time. I was very shy. And so I spent a lot of time just being quiet and just kind of melding into the background as needed because of my shyness and because I was alone a lot even though I'm from this very big family. And so by the time I got to be a preteen and a teenager, I just was like, nobody's really listening. And that, and again, that's an internal thing. My parents were like, if you would have said something, we would have listened. (laughs) But by the time I got to that age, I felt like I was very much so quiet that nobody really was listening when I talked. And so through writing, and I mentioned about how social media helped me step outside of that shyness and helped me kind of connect with the world, but it took a very long time to start to feel like I could say things and people may potentially want to listen, but Mm -hmm. both an external and an
0: internal feeling from that. It it makes me think there's a connection between, you know, these mysteries, these people who died in such mysterious ways and sad ways and lonely ways Mm -hmm. they also are voiceless. I mean, I think of Elisa Lam, I've seen that video so many times and in so many different types of ways, like people just being like, you know, freaking out about it to people being sad about it. Um, And there's almost sort of like a disappointment when it, when the, you know, the, the theory that she was going through a bipolar episode and accidentally drowned comes up is because people want it to be more mysterious than that. But you're kind of L- lending them your voice in a way. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's
1: true? I think so. I think it was a, a conscious effort on my part to like give them a little bit of humanity and to reconnect them to themselves, even though mm-hmm. I don't know any of the women, because they are so sensationalized. Like, especially Alisa, like when that um documentary that that limited series that Netflix put out in 2021 came out, like even then, like it was still very much How can we sensationalize Mm -hmm. her story? How can we lay out, I think it was eight episodes of like what happened to her. Like we know what happened to her. Like, do you want to spend your time going through all the conspiracy theories and all this? Or do you want to like possibly talk to people who knew her and to build up why she felt the need to go to LA by herself and what kind of life does she have? And, but that's not there, so- I wanted to find some kind of way to make them have humanity that even if it's only for a couple of people who had never heard their stories or had heard their stories and, and, and reduced them to some kind of like fodder for true crime that somebody would have a second thought like this is somebody's daughter or somebody's sister. And they were one person connected to the world one day and the next day they were gone. And now everything about them is about how they died and how, there's some kind of evil intent behind it. Like, I think I wrote it in Elisa's essay, like people die. I'm like, and that's, it is sometimes that's all it is. I'm like, it doesn't have to be anything. That in itself is tragedy. It doesn't have to be something deeper and darker. It doesn't have to be some thing to be analyzed. Like these are women who had people that loved them and, and to some degree, love life, and now they're gone. So instead of just writing about them as kind of like static facts, I wanted to give them some kind of heart, some kind of souls, and kind of humanity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really feel like you were holding space for that possibility. It felt like, in one sense, the you know the, the sensationalizing of Elisa Lamb's story is a way for us to say, okay, well, this couldn't happen to me. Because it was something unexplained, it was like this bigger thing that we don't understand versus let's look at her as a human being. Let's look at her life and how she was living it. and Joyce Carol Vincent, same thing. you know, like it's it feels like searching for humanity versus searching for the unexplained right. And I feel like in a way, um the Trump administration has forced me out of the world where those kinds of things are possible because I am so. On high alert for any sort of um, <laughs> like. I feel like the the age of social media, we fall for things more easily. We're yeah. not taking the step of of even just googling something or or right. reading the an entire quote of something. And so I think a previous version of me might have looked at Elisa Lamb's story and been like, "It had to be aliens, or you know, whatever, whatever it may be, or she was being hounded by a ghost or some sort of evil thing." Yeah. And now. Be- now okay. we live in reality.
1: <laughs> yeah. And like, and I think the first time I remember seeing that video of her in the elevator and there's no sound and it's just, it's very jerky and it's her like looking very either frightened or out of her mind or whatever it may be. Like, I know when I first saw that video, I was like, and when I saw it, it was attached to this idea of she playing some kind of supernatural elevator game or whatever. And the first time I saw it, it didn't cross my mind. I'm like, okay, but what happened to her afterwards? And then when I learned, I'm like, oh no, she died.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm like, oh no, this is like something. It's not just like a, a a joke where she's doing weird stuff in the elevator. I'm like, she left that elevator. And at some point between then and when they found her body, something bad happened to her. And that's not something to boil down to conspiracy theories or or any kind of like game like I just I had to take a step back when I came across her again and be like your initial reaction was to compartmentalize her into this weird space this kind of like meme of in a way but that's a human being whose last some of her last moments are caught on video and we're sitting here analyzing like the timestamp on it like that's more important than her life and Mm -hmm. it's not
0: Mm -hmm. It almost feels like we choose to sort of pull it up over ourselves like a blanket, like this story, you know, that we that we purport to not understand, you know, that's unexplainable or, you know, and not just a sad, you know, episode of her mental illness, which Mm -hmm. is a larger conversation that America should be having as a whole, right? Right. We don't want to have that conversation.
1: I think, too, some of it might be also a sense of. I think I hinted at it a little bit in the book about this idea. Like we want to know that everything that we do is important and that we can look at something as as realistic as somebody having a mental break and eventually losing their life. We look at it instead of at, this is like this reality every day, multiple mm-hmm. times a day, this is happening to somebody it's, better for us to look at it as something sensationalized. So if something does happen to us, it's very much realistic. Then we know that we are important in some way. We're important enough for somebody to care enough to do podcasts and documentaries about mm-hmm. us. Like there's mm-hmm. this sense of needing to be more and, but that more is not necessarily a good thing.
0: No. And I think about like even 20 years ago, our access to celebrities or writers we really loved was so limited. And and we had to get that information in like the newspaper or magazines, or, you know, it wasn't as easy. I mean, you can go on anyone's Instagram now or anyone's yeah. I mean, less, less Twitter now, but, um, or they're, they have their own podcasts or they have their own media and it it has sort of, it's equalized it in a way, but now it's like, you're saying everyone sort of told themselves like this is the world is about me or, or at least the world I'm creating is about me.
1: Like in technically it is, but not in the ways that have to be sensational or make you famous or infamous. Like don't necessarily want to be that depending on how you come across that, that spotlight. Like that's not necessarily always a a good thing. And I think sometimes there is a segment of people who has a difficult, has a difficult time separating being known Mm -hmm. versus like being known. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. they are not, Always good things, so like i I think that that's the problem like there's no there's no
0: line between them now, yeah, and there's like a format too you were talking about brands right and and I think yeah. there was like a brief period, maybe not so brief too long of a period where writers were sort of told you know you have to have a brand, you have to you know like you have to make content and and you have to get a big following, and then people will buy your books and I think we realize that that's not actually true, it's not really affecting But in some sense, you know, I'm I'm reminded of the part in your book where you talk about how you've taken yourself out of the constant news cycle and Mm -hmm. allowed yourself to disengage. It feels risky to do that. And it feels risky not to have some sort of online platform if you are creating something you want people to buy, right? Yeah, it can be.
1: Um, Disengaging with like the news, or at least the constant news cycle, like I was at a point where I was watching CNN on loop for the whole work day. Um, so disengaging from it in that way has been really, really good for me. Like I still have access to news and to the current events, but I I changed the way that I allow it into my life because there, I think by being in that 24 hour news cycle, it sets up this fervor and everything, I mean, everything seriously, our world is, there's a lot that's <laughs> right. super serious. But I think that they're, because everything is in this 24 hour news cycle, there's a fervor that never dies down. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it very difficult to disengage from it and then analyze what you've been told and analyze what the next step is or what the potential ripple effect of that particular thing is, because there's never any plateau to it. It's just constantly like loud graphics and swooping like videos and round tables. And like, there's no distance to kind of digest what you've been told. So, stepping away from it and getting news and whether it be newspapers or um alerts or different social media platforms with research obviously like we just said googling to make sure it's not some random person creating graphics but finding different ways to get that information so i can then take what i need from that information without feeling like there's some fever pitch around it is good Mm -hmm. um And then I forgot the second part of the question. I was just
0: equating it to, you know, us writers or creators being told, like, you have to have some sort of platform.
1: Um, I think that's a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. And I say that because I'm a person, like, I think the most followers I may have is on the former Twitter, which is my least favorite app, even before all the changes. I may have like 1800 followers there and maybe like 1400 on Instagram, um, my focus on my platform doesn't extend beyond much more than making sure that the people that I follow and the people that I interact with uh, is, or are as organic as I can get them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um Meaning if I have 1400 followers on Instagram, the vast majority of them, the, the foundational base of them are people that I actually know whether it's family, friends, creative community. And then there's some other people in there too that I meet along the way. But I am interested in the organic connection because those organic connections, whether or not I'm promoting a particular project or I have an event coming up or a book coming out, those are the people that I engage with year round. And so when I have a project come out, they're supportive because during the time that I don't have a project, I'm supporting their projects or we're having a personal communication or we're hanging out virtually or in person. So they don't feel like I'm just talking to them because my platform needs them to go buy my book. Mm -hmm. And so I concentrate much more on those organic connections. And part of that too, which was never my original intent, was being able to show some of the younger writers that I kind of fellowship with privately, like you can still have multiple books or you can still publish things without this large platform. It comes down to researching where you want your work to go and doing your best to get it into those places but it also comes from creating connections with people who may be able to, to speak your name in spaces you don't know about and so platform for me and branding for me is like the like one of the furthest things from my thought process when it comes to my writing career it may change in the future but right now it's not much that I think about because I think that it's I think sometimes people can spend more time on that than they can spend on the actual work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, and you can have a hundred thousand followers, but if you never finish the book, what's the point?
0: Um, Absolutely. And I think sometimes uh, my, the way my mind works is I'll think, Oh wait, is this a tweet? And I hate thinking like that. And and I have to go, I have to go away from Twitter so that my brain can relearn mm-hmm. how to think without thinking, Oh, should I tweet that? Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, I do that with Instagram sometimes. I'm like, oh, I could make a story about this. I'm like, but do you really need to? Like, I
0: do the same thing. Or I'll think like, oh, should I make a reel? I've, I think I've made like two or three reels in my life, and I and I'll think like, I could make a reel, and then I think about how much time would go into it, and I'm like,
1: okay. no. <laughs> what's the pay off? And what's the point? And like, what what am I trying to achieve? And sometimes I'm just like, I don't care. I'm just gonna do it anyway. Right. But sometimes I'm like, I'll get halfway, I'll get ready to hit like post. And I'm like, this is just so unnecessary. It's not moving the needle for anything. It's not anything important enough where I need to like spend time creating a piece of content for. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you have like you said, you have to retrain yourself because right now that's like the automatic the automatic thought is like, how can I? capitalize on this? How can I like get some kind of like engagement? I know, like I said, Twitter is my f- least favorite um app, but I know that there was a time there that like one of the ways that you could get somebody to be interested in your work, whether it be an agent or an editor or a publishing house, was to have a viral tweet. Yeah. And, and there are people who got book deals from that, which is cool. But then you had people who were like, okay, I gotta come up with like the best tweet ever in order to get the the eyes of X, Y, and Z, and I'm like, or you could write the book. <laughs> 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 Did it? Like, is it going to take you longer to get the viral tweet or the viral wheel or the viral TikTok than it is to spend that time working on the project? Because if they do contact you, then what are you going to show them?
0: So, and it's it's hard to know what's going to go viral, you know. Yeah. I, you know, this is a cell phone, but I feel like I I tweeted a, some funny things and they, they didn't go viral. And I'd be like, why? What's the format here? Please tell me. I need to know. <laughs> I'll take a class. Um, there is a class for that, too. I just heard that there's a, there's a, um, I think it's in Ireland. You can major in being a social media influencer at a university there. Oh, wow. And that can okay. be your degree.
1: Okay. That is that is wild. <laughs> yeah, that's very,
0: that's interesting. I'm, I'm like, which, I'm wondering what the course materials would be. I guess you just study other social media influencers, maybe, and maybe they have them speak, you know? Mm-hmm. I, yeah. That's wild. Okay. And now, I guess now there's like a method. I don't know. It's It seems very interesting because I, I think you have to be devoted to making the content all the time. And you have to have some sort of talent for communication, right? I don't know if that's easy to teach.
1: And too, I think that also lends to another type of like social disconnection. Because if there's a formula to what you need to do in order to make the content, like how much humanity is in that content, when you're just checking off bullet points of what makes something popular or what makes something potentially go viral. Like sometimes the things that really, really go viral are like those spur of the moment very human things that people connect with but if you almost know, like when you have like lifestyle bloggers and everything you could tell is very much you took multiple angles of it and mm-hmm. there's no the camera was set up when you woke up and you just happened to get out of the bed and the camera's there mm-hmm. kept watching your eyes opening like I, there's a lack of connection there that I think is so normalized now yep that like like, no, when I wake up at six 30, when my alarm goes off, there's no cell phone and a tripod capturing me, like throwing the covers back. I am mean, like that's very calculated <laughs> and people are so used to it that they don't see the calculation in it anymore,
0: but it's a curation, right? It's the curation of, of a personality. And I think, you know, we all do it, right? Like we're all creating this version of ourselves that exists online. I think like the work that you're doing, to be honest about what it takes to, to even make a book and then publish that book. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like I try to be as honest as I can about what it's like to have three kids, you know, <laughs> like I, because I don't want ever to look like those people that, you know, everything is so neat and tidy in their home. You know, I, I'm trying not to be a curated person. Um, but I, I do, I, I think you're hitting on something with that disconnect of like this thing that we're watching because it's entertainment And we're not doing the work to realize that this is created for entertainment. It's not real. Right. Right. Um, there's something about like, I feel like our generation, our online generation also feels more disconnected from like the physical than we ever have or, or Mm -hmm. of our bodies. I feel like I rarely feel fully inhabited inside my body, which is something that I try to do. I try to work on every single day. Um, especially as my, you know, my job being writing, um, you know, talking to writers is, is one way that I work on that because I think I, I, you know, I can easily hide behind my screen or hide behind other ways of communicating or not communicating at all. And then I'm sort of lost. Do you, do you do any sort of work to, to reconnect to the physical world, you know, to reconnect to your, you know, like make sure that your body and your mind are, are engaging? Um, I've been trying to
1: do over the last probably year or so, a Sunday reset for sure. So I know if nothing else happens during the rest of the week, I have a Sunday reset where I do things that are disconnected from writing or um, social media for the most part, unless I'm reading sometimes. So that's where I'm doing all the physical things that I can to kind of like get out of my head. So that's Mm me cleaning or stripping down my bed or cooking for the week or finding some other way to exist. Sometimes that looks like me just laying in silence. Sometimes it's me putting on headphones and just listening to music for hours on end as a way to kind of get out of creation mode, which can be very difficult for me. Um, I'm not a person who will automatically start writing something as inspiration comes, but it's always there. It's mm-hmm. so like I'd never feel fully rested unless I make a conscious effort to step outside of that. So Sunday reset is one of the ways that I do that. Um, I've started, which is hilarious because I wrote this whole book about loneliness and disconnection. I've really started leaning on my friendships as a way to help me step outside of myself because left to my own devices, I will stay in this apartment.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Like I work from home um, Thursdays and Fridays. So when I come in Wednesday from working in office, I can stay in this apartment from Wednesday to Monday morning and not Mm -hmm. step outside. And so learning that I had that pattern. So leaning into my friends to say, okay, Athena, we're going to go to X, Y, Z exhibit, or we're going to go to have dinner things to disconnect me from my brain in a way. But those are, those are the main ways. Like it really is. But it is a conscious effort. I will say that like, because if I don't, set time for it, if I don't make it a part of my schedule, I will just exist in a creative brain all the time and never give myself a break.
0: Absolutely. And I think that is also, you know, seeing friends and seeing people and making that effort to get out in the world. It really is a skill. It's, it's the same with like, if you are away from your writing for Mm-hmm. a month. It's painful to go back. Yeah. But then when you're in it, you're like, oh, the more I'm in it, the the easier it becomes. And the more um like healthy it becomes to be connected in this way. You know, I have a friend, shout out Karina, love you, Karina, who never gives up on me. <laughs> <laughs> she, she probably should. um, And asks me to do stuff all the time. And when I see her, I feel so um fed in a way that I'm not doing for myself, right? I need her I need others right and it's easy to lose that it's so easy
1: yeah like my friend Marisol that I mentioned in the book a couple of times I saw her this morning and I told her I had a really bad weekend and it was very difficult and the first thing she said was why didn't you call me oh I was like because I wasn't really good for the world she's like why didn't you call me <laughs>
0: oh my gosh shout out Marisol
1: yeah, I'm like, I didn't want to bother you. She's like, that's not the point. She's like, you could have called me. i would have come over. We could have met somewhere. And you wouldn't have spent the entire weekend in your head if you would have just called me. And it's it really is a difficult space where I'm like, I know Marisol, no matter what I was going through this weekend, would have been there. And she would have let me cry or she would have let me have been upset. But she would have been there. And that would have helped me break out of that a spell. So it's really it's a concentrated effort to allow people to be there for you in that way.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And I think because part of that is you don't want to burden somebody. Because I know if I'm feeling like stressed or overwhelmed, if somebody adds another thing to my plate, realistically, I'm probably going to do it because I don't say no very often, but I know how that makes me feel. So I try my best not to put that on somebody else's plate. But when people are willing to do it for you, like you have to lean into that connection
0: that they're offering you. And I'm willing to bet if Marisol was having a terrible weekend, you would be there for her immediately. And I, I I just read something and I think it was a meme. So here we go again with the social media, (laughs) but it was like, um, not letting people be there for you and see you at your worst self is another way of never letting them get to know you. Yeah. And there's all sorts of reasons why we wouldn't let someone truly get to know us and, you know, stemming from a lonely childhood, perhaps, or whatever. And, and it's so true. It's, it's, I don't want to burden you and I don't want you to see me like that because then, you know, Hmm. it opens up these other things. I'm, I, that feels like work to deal with. Right. And, and it's a way that we protect ourselves. It's a way we hold ourselves back. And, but if you flip it, and if Marisol called you, you would drop everything. Even if you were burdened, you know, or, or doing stuff for the book, you would, you know, absolutely. It's just weird that the things we tell ourselves.
1: Right. I'm like, and I, and the saddest part of that is, is that like, it's not
0: new for her (laughs) right yeah
1: it's it's like my own hurdle to get over like I could have texted her or called her and she would have been like I'm coming over or "Come here but in my own brain I'm like I have to get over this hurdle of this hyper independence or this like fear that I'm burdening somebody I'm like no those are and if that, that would have been her response which it would never be Then that's probably not a person (laughs) that I need to keep connected to in a way where. Absolutely. Like, obviously, like people have their own things, but like if her gut reaction is, I don't feel like being bothered with you, then that's something to reevaluate. But yeah, Marisol, she would do it. Marisol, we
0: love you. We do. Thank you, Marisol. Well, your book comes out tomorrow. What are you excited about?
1: I'm really excited to hear from people that I know both intimately and through like creative community um to to get their thoughts on it because I think it's it's a little difficult to explain to people how you're writing about loneliness when you have very obvious connections to the world and so I want to see what some of the some of their thoughts are um about how it manifests I know that there's been a couple of people who have read um Marisol is one of them mm-hmm. <laughs> I assumed mm-hmm. um, an advanced copy. And when I came into the office one day, she said, I had no idea. And I wish I would have asked you more questions about X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, but it's also my responsibility to tell you these things. You can't know that I'm feeling this way if I don't ever show it. And so I'm really interested in seeing their perspective of the outside of how my loneliness and disconnection presents to them. Mm-hmm. And whether or not, what I feel is actually being projected into the world. Um, And I'm also really excited because I've had a couple of people say that it's some of the essays or some of the first times that they felt like somebody's put into words kind of what they felt. So I want to see if that group of people kind of expands, but I'm also very nervous. I am.
0: Of course, of course. (laughs) I mean, that's the best feeling in the world, right? People saying, I I have these thoughts all the time and now I'm reading them and I feel less lonely or i feel seen right it's mm-hmm. that's incredible and of course more and more people are going to feel that way yeah i'm so, so excited for you this this is this is such a great book so what i love about it is it asks a lot of questions and it never makes you feel like the answers have been found right like you find it for yourself as you're reading the yeah. mysteries remain the loneliness remains it's just acknowledged recognized And because of that, it feels so human.
1: Oh, I'm glad. Like, I think too, like, even by the end of the book, like there's still so many questions that I haven't answered for myself, but like the first step and even being able to determine whether or not there is an answer or a solution or a resolution to those feelings is even acknowledging that they exist, especially when those feelings are so difficult to kind of get a handle handle on in a world that is always going, that it's always connected, like being able to have that moment of respite to say, this is how I feel now, kind of, what do I
0: do with it? It's revolutionary because we don't talk like, we don't talk like that to each other. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, it's, it's important. It's an important book. It's important work that you've done.
1: Thank
0: you. Not only because it's, you know, so human, as I said, but you know, you're bringing these stories back in a different light and um, these real lives, you know, and I don't know, everyone should read it. It's called the loneliness files. It is out on tin house. By the time you hear this, Athena Dixon is the author, and I'm so happy I got to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. This is
1: a great conversation.